This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining me today. I recently spoke with Emma Jinhua Tang about her new book, Eurasian, Mixed Identities in the United States, China, and Hong Kong, 1842-1943. This came out in 2013 with the University of California Press. Now, this is a fascinating book, whether you come to it with an interest in the history of race, of identity, of Eurasian-ness and Eurasian identity in particular, or whether you just really love a good story. What Tang has done is she's built a book with an architecture that weaves together two different kinds of chapters. Half of those chapters each introduce a particular moment, a pivot point, in the emergence and later transformations of Eurasian identity as an object, as a discourse, and as something that's experienced and later claimed by a whole range of people in the U.S., in China, and in Hong Kong. And the other group of chapters that she weaves those with are kind of shorter prefatory accounts that each introduce a character or characters that form a kind of narrative human backbone of the story. And so what you come away with is a sense that you've not only understood in really sensitively wrought detail a narrative arc of the analytic story and the history, the discursive history of Eurasian identity itself from the late 19th through the um, mid 20th centuries, but you also come away feeling like, or at least I did, you've been introduced to a bunch of people who were crucial to this story, who had their own ways of accounting and describing and experiencing and narrating their place in relation to this object, Eurasian identity. And you come away with a range of stories, of accounts, of family histories, and you just meet lots of really interesting families and really interesting people. And so it's really satisfying on both of these levels. It's extraordinarily well-researched, and it intersects with a bunch of different fields. So if you're interested in the history of eugenics, the history of uh, politics, the history of modern China, uh, the history of all, all kinds of things, social theory, you're going to find something of deep interest um, potentially in this book. But also, if you're, like I said, just really looking for a good set of stories and you just want to meet some really interesting people who lived through this fascinating period that Tang writes about, it's also really satisfying on that level. So I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed talking with Emma about it. And I hope you both enjoy the book and enjoy the conversation. I'm here today to talk with Emma Jinhua Tang about her new book, Eurasian, 
fixed identities in the United States, China, and Hong Kong, 1842 to 1943. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Emma, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today about such an interesting book. I'm really looking forward to it, so thank you. Well, thank you, Carla. I'm really privileged to be on your show. Of course. So, Emma, can you talk a little bit about what brought you to the general field that this is part of? And specifically, since this is East Asian Studies, what brought you to the field of Chinese history? But specifically, and and we'll get into this in a little bit, an approach to Chinese history that's so deeply and fundamentally transnational. Well, I have to be honest, Carla, that I got into Asian studies um, entirely by accident because I started college convinced I would be an art major. And my roommate dragged me along to a Chinese literature class that was taught by Professor Patrick Hannon. And I immediately became so enthusiastic about studying Chinese literature under Professor Hannon that I decided to change my major to East Asian studies. And I haven't looked back since. So I came to that by accident. And then as I was in my PhD program, we were required to develop a so-called outside field uh, aside from Chinese studies. I decided to choose Asian American studies at that time because it looked like it would be an interesting teaching area to engage in in the United States since we are, after all, situated here. And so that's how I came to uh, be pursuing those two fields of China studies and Asian American studies sort of simultaneously. So this book came out of the trajectory uh, that I developed when I started teaching at MIT, where I was given a position to teach two classes in Asian studies and two classes in Asian American studies. And while I found that very rewarding in terms of teaching, it was a little frustrating that I couldn't bring them together in terms of my research trajectory. So I really wanted to develop a project that would bring these two fields together and try to put them in dialogue. And so that's where the idea for this book came from. Great. Thank you so much. So the book itself um, that we're talking about looks at ideas of racial and cultural intermixing that shaped various kinds of discourses about Eurasian identity and also lived experiences of Eurasian people in China, in Hong Kong, and in the U.S. in the late 19th through the mid-20th centuries. So what brought you to this particular discourse or this particular topic as a way to focus this conversation between Asian studies and Asian American studies that you wanted to have through your teaching? Well, again, it was a little bit by accident. I didn't plan to take up this topic, even though I am uh, mixed or Eurasian myself. But it came about through um, my earlier studies of the author Suisin Farr or Edith Eaton, who, as you recall from reading the book, was one of the earliest uh, Asian American women authors to be published in the U.S. And I found her works to be so interesting and through her works uh, really engaged with this idea of the Eurasian as she discusses Eurasian experiences in North America during the early 20th century. And through that, I became aware that there were other mixed families living during that time period, whereas I had previously assumed this was really a post-1967 phenomenon of having mixed families. And also through reading Jack Chen and Mary Louie's work on early Asian American history, I became aware of these mixed families, Chinese and Western families, 
that developed early on in Asian American history. And I thought what an interesting idea it would be to pursue some of these stories. And actually one of the really fascinating um, aspects of the book from the perspective of a reader and from the perspective um, of someone who's really interested in the craft of writing and the narrative craft is that the book itself, and, and we'll get into the um, specific examples of this in a moment, but the book places so much really wonderful emphasis on the life narratives of people who are self-identifying in terms that are either explicitly Eurasian or related to um, the larger uh, cloud of terms within or from which the notion in the book of Eurasian emerges. And part of that is um, a way of organizing the book, not just to make sure that some chapters focus on these life stories and life narratives, but really ensuring that before every single chapter, you've given us a prologue that offers a kind of vignette or a story or a narrative that takes us right into the characters, at least some of the characters that either are in the chapter or that frame the chapter themselves. So could you talk actually about that a little bit before we get into um, the narrative itself? How did you come to decide to organize the book in this way with alternating vignettes and chapters? And can you talk about the importance of that in terms of the large work that you're hoping to do with the book? Yes, I think that was actually really crucial to what I want to do with the book, so thank you for mentioning that. That narrative structure actually came quite late in um, the writing of the book. It was not the way I had organized it initially. I had organized it more in a traditional way. Of, um, I had, I you know, uh, imagined I would do five chapters and a kind of classical structure of it. But as I worked on the book uh, and the people I interacted with around it, I realized that people were really most interested and engaged in the personal stories and the life narratives of the actual people who had been through this history, whether those were young students I talked to who were interracial themselves or involved in interracial relationships, or whether these were um, people who were uh, had from mixed backgrounds during this era. I think one of the stories I brought out in the story was a very interesting occurrence that happened when I publicized this project in the MIT Alumni Magazine. And then I received an email from a reader of the Alumni Magazine who contacted me and said that she really related to my research because she herself had some skeletons in the closet. And so we met and she told me these really interesting stories. And then about six months later, I was contracted by another gentleman from Hong Kong who also had personal interest in these stories based on his own background. And I found that the web, as the um, Eurasian genealogist and historian Peter Hall calls it, just expanded and expanded and so I wanted to really highlight the personal stories any way that I could. And I decided to do that by having these short prologues, as you mentioned, to preface each chapter so that the short prologue could really focus narratively on the story of an individual or a family while the chapter itself could be a little bit more analytical. Great. So as you just mentioned, um, in addition to into these really wonderful life stories and life narratives, the book also does really interesting and important analytical work, and it's engaging in some um, very powerful historical debates around ideas of ethnicity, of identity, and of your mixed and Eurasian identities in particular. 
So the book looks specifically at ideas of racial and cultural intermixing that shaped discourses about Eurasian identity and also shaped the lived experiences of Eurasian people in these three sites that you're looking at. This period, as you're showing in the book, saw the co-emergence of two very different kinds of ideas about Eurasian racial identity. And even though they're quite different, um, we're going to see, I think, um, over the course of our conversation and certainly the reader sees over the course of the book, that they're not um, necessarily completely existing in contradistinction. They're kind of co-producing each other as well. And these are, on the one hand, the belief that racial hybridity was something that was detrimental and sort of gave rise to ideas of hybrid degeneracy, abnormality, um, sort of racial hybridity is a negative thing. But on the other hand, the belief that racial crossing was good, it was eugenic, it gave rise to ideas of hybrid vigor and racial improvement. And we'll kind of see this developing over the course of the book. So the book is going to complicate the idea that people of mixed race were tragic and generally kind of despised figures, right? Showing instead that at various points in the story, they became privileged as well as being kind of, uh, there was prejudice against them. So there's a real um, complication of what tends to or has tended otherwise to be a pretty dyadic um, narrative that actually comes out of uh, weaving in and out of these life stories and situating them within a larger narrative framework, an interpretive framework that you're giving us. So the book is set up in three parts. Part one looks at debates over Chinese-Western intermarriage in the U.S. and China. And this book is, or this part of the book is going to argue um, in part against this kind of prevailing opinion that tends to hold that intermarriage in this context was never accepted, right? So you're actually looking at voices that are arguing the opposite here, among other things. So it's a prologue. Sorry, I'm just sort of setting us up. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, was no I think you got it exactly. Oh, okay, great. So the prologue opens with one of uh, many stories, as, I, as um, we've talked about a little bit before, of individuals who are setting the stage. And this is a story of a reverend, Reverend Samuel Robbins Brown and his new wife who voyage, who voyage together across the globe to China. And this leads us into the first chapter, which takes us into this larger context of intermarriage between the 1850s and the 1910s. Okay, so let's get into the figure that really, um, at least for me, um, is highlighted in, or the set of figures is highlighted in chapter one. And this is the figure Young Wing. So this chapter opens with the figure of Young Wing, who's a Cantonese boy who was a student of this reverend who we met in the prologue and accompanied him and his wife to New York in the middle of the 19th century. And what happens afterwards is he gets married to this woman, Mary Louise Kellogg, and there's a, there's a lot of reaction to this, um, both positive and negative. So can you, talk, can you start us off by talking about this, sort of what's going on um, in this part of the story with Young Wing and Mary Louise Kellogg? And what do we need to understand about that and the reaction to that to understand the larger arguments that you're making in this part of the book? Well, thank you. I think Young, Young Wing's story is especially important, and many uh, listeners will probably know Young Wing as the very famous so-called grandfather of overseas Chinese students. So he was the founder of the Chinese educational mission that brought young students to study in the United States as early on as 1872. And so overseas Chinese students today consider him a kind of founding father of that. But what I wanted to bring attention to was that he was also in some ways a founding father of Chinese Western intermarriage. He was one of the earliest um, 
men from the scholar or official class to marry a white American woman, and they married in 1875, as you mentioned. And this story was also very interesting to me because it challenged my presumption and what I had learned previously that American society was uniformly opposed to miscegenation between the white and so-called colored races. And what I found with their story instead in 1875, which was before the enaction of Chinese exclusion in 1882, was that American society, especially on the East Coast, especially among elites on the East Coast, was relatively more open to this intermarriage than one might have expected from this anti-miscegenation narrative. And so if we look at the New York Times report on their marriage, it's uh, actually quite positive. It doesn't say anything about the taboo of intermarriage or condemn it as unnatural or as a sin against God, but instead um, sees it as a marriage of elites and praises the wedding for all of its, you know, very lavish and luxurious details that are quite exotic, uh, having taken place in the small suburb of Avon, Connecticut. And so that, to me, was a very good example of how the experiences of Chinese and Western intermarriage in the U.S. were actually quite diverse, depending on the time they took place, whether it was before or after Chinese exclusion, and also the place that the East Coast was relatively more accepting than the West Coast. Class was another aspect I wanted to highlight because, as I mentioned, these were both elites. Young Wing was an elite. Mary Louise Kellogg was from a local um, elite family. She was a daughter of the American Revolution. And so there was a kind of what I call... um, Orientalist uh, rose-colored glasses that people were looking at this marriage through, which was quite different from the way they might have talked about the marriage of a Chinese laborer to a white American woman at this time. So I think class, time period, and region were all really important here. One of the other things that's really striking about this chapter that um, you're arguing or showing here, rather, is that there were, it wasn't just in the U.S. where Chinese Western intermarriage was being discussed. And so the chapter actually does a really nice job as well, showing the very different opinions about Chinese Western intermarriage, not just in the U.S., but also in China, right? where, there, where there's also a diversity of opinion, and you talk about that um, in some detail. So it's a really nice multi-sided accounting of different kinds of reactions and the plurality in each of these sites um, of reactions to this kind of a relationship at this time. Yes, thanks. As you mentioned um, in the prologue to this, that what my main goal here was to debunk this presumption that intermarriage was never accepted by either side, that it was always taboo, you know, until past the 1960s. And instead, what I wanted to show, highlight was the idea of debates, that there was diverse opinion on this, that some people were bitterly opposed, of course, to intermarriage, but some people were sort of neutral or, as Twitchell said, had doubts about it but were not opposed outright, and others actually supported or praised intermarriage as a way of bringing together nations or bringing together cultures. And so that's diversity on both sides of the Pacific is what I try to bring out in this chapter. 
So you mentioned the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Um, this is one of several um, touchstones, several kind of legal touchstones that are going to permeate the story and take us through different aspects of the story as we move through the chapters. The next chapter um, takes us right into another context, a Marital Expatriation Act of 1907, as it considers how the dynamics of Sino-American intermarriage are changing after the U.S. Congress passes this act and uses um, it. In order to do this, it uses the case of an American woman who married a Chinese student and followed him to China to look specifically at, at how this unfolded from the perspective of the problem of gender and dependent citizenship in this context. So you ask, or the, the chapter rather considers the question, what did it mean for a Euro-American woman to become Chinese through marriage, especially in this era? Of Chinese exclusion. So the example, um, is the really wonderful example, um, actually, that you uh, use to explore this in this chapter is the example of the story of Mae Watkins and her husband, Tiem Hock Franking. So could you talk a little bit about that example um, for listeners? And specifically, perhaps, what do we, um, what about this example, or what is striking about understanding this example that helps us understand this larger set of arguments, especially about gender that you're making in this chapter. Well, this is a really wonderful, again, true life story of Mae Watkins, who was a native of Ann Arbor, Michigan, who met this overseas student, Tam Hock Franking. His name is Huang Tam Fu in Mandarin, who had come to study in Michigan. And they met as students. They fell in love. They, of course, met quite a bit of opposition over this. But interestingly, the Watkins family was very accepting of Tim Hawk. Initially, they thought perhaps the, the you know, young couple should have a cooling off period, try to um, perhaps rethink this rather controversial marriage. But in the end, they accepted it and they welcomed Tim into their home. But tragically, what happened to May, and I think this is quite shocking to find out in terms of U.S. law, is that the Marital Expatriation Act of 1907 actually stripped U.S. citizenship from all female citizens who married non-citizen husbands. So this was a you know, real act of gender bias because it did not affect American citizen men who married non-citizen women. It was only targeted at female citizens who would then lose their citizenship. And that's exactly what happened to May. When she married Tiam Hock in 1912, she thereby lost her U.S. citizenship. She became a Chinese national by default. And so this is a really interesting uh, background for the fact that she then traveled to China and started a new life over in China. Of course, she was uh, you know, greeted as a white American woman when she arrived there, but she was not only Chinese by nationality, but also became Chinese because she had married into a Chinese family. And the lineage was really extremely important during that time period. And so gradually people had to come to accept her as a Chinese woman. And she herself really embraced her adopted land and tried to become as signified as she could. She adopted Western dress. She attempted to learn Chinese, which most importantly for her meant the Amoy dialect of her in-laws. And uh, she took up embroidery. She um, 
took up attending the Chinese opera with her Chinese mother-in-law. She ate many Chinese delicacies, including duck's feet. And so she really tried to embrace the culture in which she found herself. So I thought that was a very interesting example to explore because most of the discourses about assimilation really focus on the question of foreigners coming to the U.S. and whether or not they are willing to assimilate into the dominant American culture. And yet here was exactly the reverse case of a Euro-American woman who went to China and attempted to assimilate into the culture there. So it complicates the way that we look at the dynamics of assimilation. And what I urge people in the chapter is to really think about the possibilities of assimilation as a two-way street rather than thinking that assimilation should always uh, equal westernization. Now, you mentioned a little bit earlier um, when we were getting set up that you actually worked with the Franking family um, as part of the research for this book. Is that right? Did I... Yes, I was actually really fortunate uh, toward the end of my research that I was able, after some digging, to get in touch with the Franking family. Um, William Franking Wu, who is the grandson of May Franking, is actually a very well-known Asian-American um, science fiction writer. And so I was able to contact him. And the Franking family was very generous in terms of sharing stories with me, um, sharing photographs. You see the beautiful photograph that's on the cover of the book. And many of the other photographs were shared with me by the Franking family. And so it really uh, enriched my research at that point. So I was very grateful to them. That's, I know his science fiction. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> isn't that I incredible? His work. Isn't that incredible? Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you. So after this part one of the book that looks at um, debates around intermarriage, we move to the second part of the book, Debating Hybridity. Now, this part of the book contains three chapters that each look at different discourses around the offspring of Chinese Western intermarriages. Now, we're going to see in these chapters that the figure of the Eurasian, like the offspring of these intermarriages, was sometimes treated as something that was problematic, and it's sometimes treated as a signal of a kind of utopian future of racial harmony. So it's a really, really interesting, um, it's an interesting set of debates here and set of uh, discourses. The third chapter looks at 19th century American discourses on the degeneracy of hybrids. It also looks at journalistic representations of hybrids or quote, I'm doing air quotes here, half breeds, okay, now out of air quotes, um, especially in relation to what you call the Chinese question. Now, the main figure in this chapter is this super fascinating figure named George Apo. He is the son of um, a couple of people, including a a Quimbo or Kimbo Apo, who we met in the prologue of this chapter. And he becomes taken up as sort of this icon of um, the problematic nature of Eurasian identity. And he gets into all kinds of trouble. But it's a really fascinating story. So can you talk about um, about him? Sort of who is George Apo, this really problematic figure, and how does this case um, help us understand something about discourses of biological determinism um, and sort of the potential degeneracy of, um, you know, in quotes, of interracial hybrids in this period? 
Well, George Apo's story is a really fascinating story. As you mentioned, he's the son of Kimbo Apo and Catherine Fitzpatrick, who was an Irish immigrant woman in the United States. And their marriage, unusual as it might sound in 19th century New York, was actually fairly common, as other historians have demonstrated. That is, there was a significant number of Chinese immigrant men who were marrying Irish immigrant women in New York City. And it had a lot to do with the uh, gender imbalances of the respective communities. That is, most of the immigrant, Chinese immigrants at that time were overwhelmingly male. Very few Chinese women traveled to the United States at this time. And Irish women, in conversely, outnumbered Irish male immigrants. And many of these Irish immigrant women and Chinese immigrant men met in the lower wards of Manhattan and in, came into interaction and ended up marrying. So George Apo was an example of this kind of really interesting intermarriage. In fact, I should tell you his full name is really George Washington Apo. Right, right. It's a really interesting name because his father uh, decided, you know, he was born on July 4th, that this should be a very patriotic child and to signal his affiliation with his adopted country of the United States, he wanted to name his son George Washington Apo. And the press actually loved that. So that's how his story first came into the newspapers because they thought this was so fantastic that a Chinese man would name his son George Washington so initially in the newspapers, George Apo was kind of heralded as this new second generation of the Chinese immigrants. And his father at the time was actually someone who, who you could say made it because he was not a common laborer. He had elevated himself to uh, being a tea merchant or a tea taster. You know, his fortune sort of went up and down. At one point he had opened a shop, but then I don't think it um, really was successful. So his fortunes went up and down. But they felt that here was a successful story of assimilation, a Chinese immigrant man who married a Irish-American woman and who had a son who was looking sort of white was the way that the newspapers looked looked upon him, you know, that he wasn't altogether ill-looking as his strange-looking Chinese father was. But then poor George was abandoned for various very complicated reasons that you can read about in the book. It's a very fascinating story. But he uh, was abandoned as a young child and ended up becoming a pickpocket. And that's how he came into notoriety in the press later in his life because of his very colorful criminal career. So Louis Beck, who wrote a book on New York's Chinatown in 1898, fixed on George Apo as an example in his mind of what would happen to these so-called half-breeds, as you mentioned, we have to use the air quotes, who were coming forth in greater and greater numbers in New York City at that time and caused a lot of people to worry because these were the people who believed in ideas of hybrid degeneracy, that the mixing of the white and non-white races was um, detrimental, would produce all kinds of biological abnormality, and in this case seemed to give rise to someone who was a born criminal. 
In other words, the very fact that he was mixed had produced certain traits such as criminality, insanity, a tendency to addiction, and so on and so forth. And so he was taken by the author as a kind of warning sign. Look out what might happen to our population if we allow miscegenation between whites and Chinese to continue. It would lead to basically the downfall of Western civilization and the degeneracy of the races. Now, the next chapter, though, moving from um, three to four, actually shows the counterpart to this attitude toward um, hybridity and to the the offspring of these um, intermarriages that we looked at in the first part of the book. And this moves us from notions of hybrid degeneracy to notions of what you call here hybrid vigor or a kind of utopian vision of the Eurasian figure as a kind of um, figure that was going to potentially lead us to this utopian future of racial harmony. Um, So this kind of idealization, a sort of eugenic set of ideas. So in this chapter, you look at um, the idea of um, the union, um, this is in quotes now, of the yellow and white races in Kangyo Wei's One World Treatise. And you also look at the kind of utopian visions of Zhang Jingsheng, whose principles of beauty are part of his larger discourses about sex. Uh, He's a sexologist, among many other things, and a really, really fascinating figure in his own right. So can you talk a little bit about this counterpoint? Sort of what are some of the um, arguments? And if you are interested in talking about Kang Wei or Zhang Jingsheng or neither, whatever you're most interested in talking about in this context, but what are some of the arguments um, and discourses around now this other side of the coin, this idea of the hybrid as this um, kind of a very, very potentially beneficial utopian kind of a thing? Well, as we mentioned at the outset, there was actually two sets of ideas concerning so-called racial or biological hybridity. One is the idea of hybrid degeneracy, that is, if you crossed the races, so-called pure races, as if there were such a thing, um, that it would produce uh, degeneracy. And the flip side was that if you crossed uh, unlike races, you would produce hybrid vigor. Now, the early proponents of this idea um, in the 19th century in the West were mainly arguing that so-called proximate races, for example, the Anglo-Saxon race and the Teuton race, when crossed, would produce this kind of hybrid vigor. And they didn't tend very much, for the most part, to apply the idea to crossing of yellow and white races, although there are some figures who did embrace that, and I mentioned them in the book. So what was interesting is this idea was actually taken up in China by some very prominent thinkers, and you mentioned Kang Youwei is probably the most famous of these thinkers, who argued in his One World Treatise that the way to do away with racial barriers, which were a great cause of discrimination and uh, suffering in the world, was to, in fact, unify the races and get rid of all artificial racial barriers. And he believed that we could start doing this by crossing the so-called yellow and white races. And in his imagination, this would produce a kind of of best-of-both-world scenarios where the offspring would inherit what he considered to be the positive traits of the white race, 
mingle together with the positive traits of the yellow race and without inheriting any of the so-called bad traits of either. And so he very much idealized this Eurasian intermixing in his work. But what I want to caution against in, you know, in the conclusion of this chapter I bring out is that I really don't want to set up a dichotomy between the bad or racist views of intermixing versus the good or positive views of intermixing. Because as I show in this chapter, in fact, Kang Wei's kind of idealization of this hybrid vigor of the Eurasian is really just as racist in its underpinnings as the hybrid degeneracy that I examine in the George Oppo chapter. Mm-hmm. And that it's really served uh, very illiberal purposes and not just a kind of utopian anti-racist vision. Thank you so much. And speaking of destabilizing dichotomies, as we move to the final um, chapter in this part of the book, you're also destabilizing another potential dichotomy here. So this chapter looks at um, what's positioned here as the early 20th century turn from biological, which is um, largely what we've been talking about, or at least an aspect um, of the chapters we've been talking about in this section, to sociological notions of mixed race. But at the same time that you bring us into very different discourses of um, the sociology of mixed race, you're also showing here um, that even though we tend to, we can think of this as a turn towards sociological modes of thinking, still the biological is in here. And it's also a way of destabilizing this dichotomy between the biological and the sociological in, I think, interesting and important ways. So this chapter compares the work of Chinese and American sociologists who are both studying Sino-American miscegenation. And you situate this within the context of a really important turning point in the 1920s and 30s where we see um, this kind of development thanks to the Chicago School, thanks to Franz Boas, that reorients the discourse on racial mixing um, toward the social and away from the uh, biological, and this is a very, or uh, exactly, toward the social, sorry, away from the biological, and this is a very transnational kind of a story. Now, you look in this um, chapter at the work of two main figures. Um, there is Wu Jingchao, who's a Chinese student writing his dissertation on American Chinatowns, and there's also the work of Herbert de Lampson, who is an American student writing a dissertation on the American community in Shanghai. So through comparing the work of these two um, very two uh, very different figures, but also not so different in, in other ways, the chapter is going to argue that 20th century sociological discourse on mixed races is not just about pathology, but also, as you put it here, it's about exceptionalism. So can you talk a little bit about that? What's important about the fact that um, we recognize that this was also about exceptionalism? And what's important about the work of the people you're looking at in this chapter that highlights this for us? Well, I think that, again, I wanted to bring out the idea of hybrid exceptionalism in sociology to complicate the story and show that there were diverse viewpoints and debates about the sociological outcome of um, intermixing, just as there were debates concerning the biological aspects. So basically, the, the sort of negative view in sociology from the early 20th century concerning mixed-race peoples was that they were 
pathological, that they were bound to have certain kinds of social problems, that they were prone to suicide, that they were marginalized from society, and uh, doomed to be so-called marginal men as a kind of pathological condition. But other sociologists, and E.B. Reuter was one of these, actually argued in his work, The Hybrid as a Sociological Type, that the hybrid was not necessarily pathological, but had the potential to be, in fact, superior to the non-mixed offspring. But what he really meant was that the mixed-race offspring would be superior, in his mind, to the non-white aspect of their heritage. And so he developed this idea of um, what some people at the time called mulatto superiority. seems like a very negative term um, for us today. But when he argued that, in fact, mixed-race people were equipped to be the uh, leaders of their group, that they were intellectually superior, and that they would facilitate or bridge interracial relations between their community and the white community. But what Herbert Day Lamson does is to really shoot down this idea of hybrid exceptionalism. And in fact, he points out some of the racism that's really inherent in some of this thinking. Um, he shows, for example, that in Shanghai, the mixed-race Eurasians were not in any way superior to the so-called pure-blood native Chinese. He championed the Chinese to show that they were equally, if not more, intelligent and capable of modernization as the half-white Eurasians were. And so he demonstrates that the... Um, the idea that you could use the mixed-race community as a way to facilitate the acceptance of Western cultural norms in China was actually, just because they were mixed-race, was actually a very misguided way to think of things um, and show that this was actually a very ethnocentric as well as racist way of looking at the situation. I wanted to mention that this chapter, in fact, owes a lot to the work of Henry Yu, who has talked about you know, his very in-depth study of American Orientalism and the Chicago School. And the reason why I call this chapter Reversing the Sociological Lens is that I build on Henry Yu's work, which focuses very much on the Chicago School's interest in looking at Chinese immigrant communities in the U.S., and I just Juxtapose that with Herbert Day Lamson's project of looking at the reverse, that is the American uh, expatriate community in Shanghai. And so he comes up with some very interesting contrasts by looking at immigrant communities in the U.S. and immigrant communities, if you would call them that, in China and showing that ethnocentric presumptions really underpinned the very formation of sociological theory at that time. Great. Thank you so much. And shout out Henry Yu's a colleague. So love him. Oh, great. Love him. <laughs> so part three, as we move from, um, so just a UBC shout out. Yes, big shout out to Henry. 
<laughs> so as we move from part two to part three of the book, we move to this section called Claiming Identities. This is a really exciting section, and it's a part of the book that turns to discourses of Eurasian identity as produced by Eurasians themselves and pays special attention to life narratives, as we've talked a little bit about at the beginning of our conversation, and to other forms of self-presentation and self-representation. So it's a really important and really, really fascinating um, part of the book. And so I'm, I'm really delighted to talk about this with you. So in chapter six, you focus in on the work of a figure who you've already mentioned um, briefly, I think, um, early on in our conversation. This is Edith Maud Eaton, along with some others, to consider some specific examples of how Chinese Eurasians in North America negotiated the color line specifically. And so this is a chapter that gets into ideas of color and race and whiteness in the way that they are imbricated into the self-presentation and self-representation of figures who are identifying um, identified as and or self-identifying as Eurasian in some form. So um, she is such a fascinating figure and what she's doing in this chapter is so interesting that I think the best way for me to ask a question about this chapter is just to ask, can you talk about her? Um, who is she for listeners who uh, don't know much about her or don't know who she is and what is um, what is really important about her work and how she is self-representing um, in this chapter in terms of the larger arguments that you're making in this part of the book? Well, as you mentioned, Edith Maud Eaton is a, and her sister, Winifred Eaton, are both really fascinating characters, and a lot has been written about them. There's a large uh, number of works that are dedicated to these two sisters. Their really fascinating story is that um, Edith and Winifred are the daughters of Edward Eaton and Lotus Blossom, their Chinese mother, who had married in Shanghai in 1863. And then after the birth of a son, they moved back to England, which is where Edward was from originally, and Edith was born there. But then the family became very, very transnational. They moved to North America, and then I think back to Britain again, and back to North America, and eventually ended up in Montreal, Canada. And both Edith and her sister Winifred decided to become writers. But they had very different strategies for how to navigate uh, the problem of, you know, how do you become a, an accepted, publishable writer? It's always, it's a problem now. It was a problem back then. And they came up with two different strategies. Edith decided that she would adopt a Chinese pen name or a Chinese-sounding pen name, which is Sui Sin Far, which means Narcissus in Cantonese. And her sister, on the other hand, decided to adopt a Japanese-sounding pen name, Onoto Watana. And the reason for this was quite simple, which was that Chinese during this time period, this is the time of Chinese exclusion, were considered to be much lower in racial status than the Japanese. And Winifred believed that by creating a Japanese persona for herself, she would be much more acceptable and also be able to trade on the American fascination with Japanese to market herself. And in fact, she was fabulously successful. Mm-hmm. 
Now, you talk about um, what's happening here in the context of whiteness um, and her relationship to whiteness. Do, maybe could you talk a little bit about that? Because it winds up being, I think, effectively for the reader, a really, really wonderful way of not just complicating how we think about um, Eurasian identity, but also how we think about how this is imbricated in the construction and the emergence of, of white identity or the idea of whiteness as part of identity in this period. Well, this chapter, I think, complicates ideas of the color line by showing that this notional color line dividing white and non-white, particularly during this era of segregation, of Chinese exclusion, was not always as fixed or rigid as you might imagine that it was. And I show that Edith Eaton and her siblings actually had a very ambiguous relationship to this color line that they had to navigate throughout their lives. Um, So according to American notions of mixed race, and this is something I bring out in the introduction to the book, the notion of hypodescent has sort of been the predominant convention for thinking about mixed race. So in other words, the hypodescent means that if a person is a mixed race uh, with a white parent and a non-white parent, they should be assigned the non-white identity. At the most extreme form this took was known as the so-called infamous one-drop rule. So in other words, if you are partially white but partially non-white, then you cannot be white. You have to be of the non-white identity. But I show here in uh, looking at the lived experiences of the Eaton family is that they were not necessarily uh, perceived nor did they necessarily present themselves as being Chinese, as might be uh, expected according to this rule of hypodescent. Instead, they had much more complicated identities that both Edith and Winifred herself used the word Eurasian to um, capture that kind of ambiguity of their status. Great. Thank you. Now, as we move um, from this to the next chapter, also really interestingly, um, this even further complicates the situation. In chapter seven, you present two cases in which physical appearance is actually um, not as important at all for those who are claiming Chineseness in this context compared with, um, as you put it here, historical American constructions of whiteness. So again, this becomes a very interesting um, story, not just for, um, I think, readers who are interested in Eurasian history and identity, but also it really interestingly informs um, and gives another perspective on other forms of um, racial history. So these two figures that you look at in this chapter are um, Irene Chung and Han Suyin, who took very different pathways to claim Chinese identity, um, and you look at them in turn. So Irene Chung um, claims a kind of um, identity that's rooted more in a, a sort of mastery of Chinese written language and education, whereas the other example in this chapter um, claims identity based on, um, in part, blood, but in part, a, a kind of loving China. So this is a really interesting set of examples. Um, it's a very interesting counterpoint, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit um, about how this counterpoint Um, manifests the larger argument that you're making here in this chapter and really complicates how we think about identity formation, at least in this context. Well, as I mentioned um, 
I discussed in the previous chapter this idea of hypodescent or the one drop rule. And many people actually take this for granted today as a kind of normal way of thinking about race. So I give the one example in the book is our President Barack Obama, that many people take it for granted that he is an African American or perhaps a biracial president, but you would rarely hear him spoken of as a white president, even though he is half black and half white. Um, so that gives an illustration of how this one drop rule of the notion of hypodescent can be taken for granted as a normal way of thinking about mixed race in our society. But what we find when we turn to the Chinese case is that hypodescent simply doesn't make sense in that context. Ideas of blood quantum are not relevant in that context. Instead, for the Chinese ways of reckoning identity, patrilineal descent trumps everything. And so, therefore, that meant that children of mixed marriages would have very different identities depending on the gender combination of their parents. If your father is Chinese, then you're considered to be Chinese, regardless of the racial or national identity of the mother. And conversely, if the father is non-Chinese and the mother is Chinese, the child will not be considered Chinese. So patrilineal descent, the possession of a Han Chinese surname, and membership in the lineage are really important in terms of defining identity in this context. What I show by contrasting Irene Cheng and Han Suyin is that these two individuals had very different ways of claiming their identities. Han Suyin, as you mentioned, really buys into this idea of patrilineal descent. She claims that she is Chinese, uh, despite her Belgian mother, because her father is Chinese. And she, in fact, mentioned, it's quite interesting, she mentions a story uh, where she talked with her uh, very chauvinistic first husband, who... In fact, it denied that she was mixed at all. When she mentioned to him, you know, don't forget I'm mixed, he says, nonsense. Your blood is Chinese. Blood comes from the father, and the mother is only a receptacle. And so this idea was actually mentioned over and over in numerous sources um, the son of Young Wing, Bartlett Young, also who traveled to China in 1913, mentioned he had a similar experience, that he was considered to be Chinese because his father was Chinese and the mother was considered to be completely irrelevant. So Han Suyin builds her claim to being Chinese, authentically Chinese very much in terms of this patrilineal descent as well as her birth in China and, as you mentioned, her extreme patriotic loyalty to China. Irene Cheng's family is a rather different case because they were descended uh, in terms of their ancestry from a Dutch Englishman that is uh, surnamed Bosman. And so the family in claiming a Chinese identity actually had adopted a Han Chinese surname and also adopted many of the ritual practices of Chinese ancestor worship in addition to other cultural aspects of uh, Chinese identity. And in making themselves Chinese within the context of Hong Kong society at the time, they really enacted that through their cultural practices and their sense of identification. And they 
therefore they downplayed the idea of patrilineal descent, which was so important to Han Suyin. So I show in here that there were different, very different pathways for claiming a Chinese identity depending on the gender of the ancestry. Thank you so much. Now, this actually also comes up um, a little bit in the next chapter, which is actually the final body chapter of the book before we come to the coda and the epilogue. And this is a chapter that looks at um, a couple of different sort of major foci. Um, one of them is Charles Graham Anderson's Manifesto for Eurasian Unity, um, which is really interesting. But what I want to ask you about um, is this other focus of this chapter that you talk about, and this is the Eurasian Welfare League, this uh, founding or this organization that's founded in interwar Hong Kong. And you use this to help us think about how a kind of ethnic shift among Hong Kong's mixed race population really starts generating. And from this shift, um, we see emerging a kind of communal identity that is distinctly Eurasian as contrast or in contrast to a, a specifically European or Chinese identity. And part of this identity is rooted in ideas of motherhood, who your mother is, but not entirely. Um, you show some flexibility as far as that's concerned. So can you talk a little bit about this group? Um, what's the Eurasian Welfare League and what's so important about that for this formation of Eurasian sort of communal identity in Hong Kong in this port, at this point? Well, the Eurasian Welfare League was founded after a meeting in 1929 of very prominent Eurasians in Hong Kong who came together and they were spurred on by a spontaneous donation of $10,000, which was a lot of money at the time, from a Eurasian who wanted to make sure that other Eurasians in Hong Kong would be taken care of if they met with any kind of financial difficulties. Now, the reason behind this was because many Eurasians at this time felt that they didn't have a well-defined place within Hong Kong colonial society, which they were excluded from Britishness, and yet they didn't quite entirely fit in with the Chinese community. And therefore, they thought it was very important that they should step forward and take care of their own. So we have to remember how segregated Hong Kong was at this time. There was um, segregation in terms of cemeteries, segregation in terms of schooling, um, segregation in terms of um, you know the recreation clubs and things like this. And so many of the Eurasians had felt that they really needed to make sure that they had a place of their own, uh, especially if other Eurasians fell on hard times financially. And so they formed this Welfare League, which is in existence until this day. In fact, it's a very interesting organization and shows the very strong connections of this Hong Kong Eurasian community, even though many of the members don't, in fact, live in Hong Kong anymore. So, Emma, before I let you go, there is, um, I, I want to ask you a little bit about the coda um, before we wrap up. Now, the coda, Elsie Jane Comes Home to Rest, this looks at the descendants of early mixed marriages that are discussed in the book. And specifically, it considers ways that these descendants as individuals and collectively has, have really embraced their dual heritages. And as you put it here, builded or have built a kind of collective memory. You, we mentioned, or you mentioned to me early on, um, 
working with the young family um, in putting together the material for this coda. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about about that and about the larger kind of work um, that the coda is doing and, and your experience with this family in, in making that happen. Well, I think the coda to me was really important because it showed that the descendants of these early mixed marriages are really able to come together now and reclaim with pride their mixed heritages, even though many of them, in fact, these families in earlier years had been forced to pass, whether that meant passing for white in the United States or in the case of China and Hong Kong, passing for Chinese. Uh, as I mentioned in some of the early chapters, some of the early Eurasian children were actually told by their parents and grandparents, do not divulge these family secrets. Right? Do not let people know that we are mixed. It was often considered something shameful that needed to be hidden and in the closet. But what's wonderful now with new attitudes about interracialism and more liberal ideas about intermarriage, the descendants of the families are able to reclaim these very interesting mixed identities with pride and to assert new identities that don't have to fit into the boxes of being one thing or the other anymore. And so, as I mentioned, I did was very interested in being able to connect with the family of Dana Bruce Young, who is the descendant of a very eminent Young Kwai, who was an early diplomat in the United States. He had been on the Chinese educational mission and then worked as a diplomat in Washington D.C. And the you know the whole family for several generations went to Yale, and they became very eminent. Uh, but was quite quite interesting to learn is that at one point the family changed the spelling of their last name to Y-O-U-N-G, which is a kind of more anglicized spelling than Y-U-N-G. But in talking with Dana Bruce Young, I realized that this was not just a simple act of trying to pass, as one might superficially presume on the face of it, but that in fact his father had decided to change his name to feel that he could fit in better to American society, but without ever denying or not taking pride in his Chinese heritage, which he passed on to his children. And so I think that's a really great example of how presumptions that one should try to pass for white in order to uh, have a more privileged racial status, in fact, is not a, a very valid way of looking at people's lived experiences and the ways that they saw their own identities during those time periods. Well, thank you so much. Um, there's, I, I'll just mention for listeners without asking you um, really to talk too much about it, just to, in the interest of respecting your time, that there's also an epilogue um, after all of these really wonderful chapters in the coda. And what the epilogue does is it brings these um, phenomena that we've been reading about now and talking about throughout the book into a consideration of how to reflect on our, our lives and our world today. And so it sort of brings um, these issues into the present and perhaps into the future in really interesting ways.
So Emma, there's a ton of material in the book um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's full of really wonderful stories, really moving stories, and a lot of really sensitive um, analyses of documents and narratives and arguments that we didn't have a chance to talk about just purely um, because of time. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention um, for listeners and um, perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Well, thanks, Carla. I mean, I think you mentioned a couple times the richness of the sources, the richness of the stories that are in the book. And I want to say that none of that would have been possible without the really pioneering work of Peter Hall from Hong Kong, who now lives in Great Britain, who wrote two very uh, important volumes on the early history of Eurasians in Hong Kong called The Web. And in that, he details uh, the genealogies of many prominent Eurasian families in Hong Kong, their histories, their stories, uh, and that's a very, very rich source for understanding these experiences during that time period. So without that work, it wouldn't have been possible really to build on all these rich diversity of uh, stories that I try to bring, weave into the narrative of the history. And I think without those personalized stories, the history and uh, just analysis of the documents themselves would not have that same richness and resonance for the readers. Great. Well, thank you so much. Um, thank you for, first of all, taking the time to talk with me today, but thank you also for the book. It's a beautiful book, um, and it was really a pleasure to read through it. I learned a lot, and also it was just a lot of fun. It's really beautifully written. So thank you, and congratulations on the book, and it was really a pleasure. Thank you so much, Carla, for your really kind words. I'm really pleased that you read the book. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.